gotta keep moving. All I could do was keep repeating that sentence in my head over and over. My limbs were numb and blackness started to creep in from the corners of my eyes as I shook my head to avoid blacking out. I've gotta keep moving. As I struggled to reclaim the air that had been knocked out of my lungs, I took a quick glance up at where we had fallen from. The stone and ivy fence was easily 15 feet up and we'd fallen onto the concrete paved surface of our parking structure with a hard thud. But summoning something deep inside, I willed my bruised and battered body to move. Gotta keep moving. In the distance, we could still hear the faint and fading cries and moans of young lives ended before their time. But we saw no bodies, no blood, no attackers, nothing. Not even another car in the parking lot except for mine, some 100 yards away. Funny, Jack Daniels and I had been jumping fences, dodging bullets and knives and spears and rocks and teeth and leg warmers, fighting our assailants, scaling walls, crashing through windows all night long. But now on the only level stretch of open terrain we'd come across, now I was the most frightened. Nothing but 100 yards of dotted lines and asphalt between us and them. Rick Springfield and his evil horde of vampire women. I get excited Just thinking what you might be like I get excited There's heaven in your eyes tonight The fire's ignited down below It's burning bright Oh baby, stay with me All night All night Baby, please, I can please If I'm on my knees tonight What you've just heard is an excerpt from the story Jesse's Girls from the collection Omnibus Prime the incredibly strange and somewhat true adventures of Neil Daly. I documented the night I first encountered Rick Springfield and learned that he was the undead back in 2004, years before he began to mock his own vampirism on television shows like Supernatural, American Horror Story, or Californication. Back when he renounced God for his breakup with the Exorcist star Linda Blair and went on a reckless and fateful ATV ride in the desert resulting in a fatal crash. Of course, no one else would know that Rick Springfield died that night and become something wholly other. Only I knew, and the terror of that night still haunts me to this day as I wake up screaming almost on a nightly basis that Rick Springfield is coming for me. But I'm not here to promote my own book, Omnibus Prime, The Incredible, Strange, and Somewhat True Adventures of Neil Daly, which is available on Amazon.com and Apple Books. Nor am I here to horrify or alienate Rick Springfield's fandom. This podcast is to celebrate his music. For Rick Springfield's musical legacy is strangely hypnotic and addictive. Even those songs released pre-vampirism. His catalog is imbued with hordes of catchy pop rock tunes and survived by legions of undying, unwavering, bloodthirsty women of the night. And whether you've invited them in or not, Rick Springfield's lyrics to many a song reside dormant in your head while you sleep. And what better person to recruit for this podcast than the person who authored the foreword to my book, Omnibus Prime. <laughs> My very own personal Van Helsing, Ryan Daly. <laughs> What's up, bro? How you doing? How you doing? Like, you know, in all of that, you forgot to mention, uh, I think, crucially, that Rick Springfield is Australian. So there's all oh, of that. Oh, we'll get to that. Don't you fret. Don't you frown. There is absolutely – once we get to the whole point where his, my whole world turned upside down, it's got a lot to do with that. Well, hemispherically speaking. <laughs> Hemisphere, yeah, of course. Of course. Stupid toilets turning backwards. <laughs> you know all about my story. You know all about the, the horror of that night. 
and you were kind of, you know, you weren't there in person to witness, but you were there on ground zero when, you know, I, you were probably the first person I called when I realized I had survived the night, but was worried about every single night in my future. But let's, you know, let's, let's not talk, let's, let's talk about the music. You know, the reason I want to do this podcast is because honestly, the impetus for that whole story was the fact that I went to see a Rick Springfield concert and I went to see him in, I think, 2004, me and my friend, Jack Daniels, who will reserve the name, you know, to, for, yeah, exactly. So Jackie, changed. Jackie Daniels and I went to see, uh, Rick Springfield and we did it honestly as a goof. It was totally as a goof. We went thinking that we, first of all, we had free tickets. It was at the house of blues in Anaheim and it was going to be 10,000 screaming women with like blown up bangs and leg warmers <laughs> and shaker sweaters with belts on the outside and just horny women watching Rick Springfield so the two of us were just like oh this will be like this will be like shooting fish in a barrel you know it'll be it'll be perfect so that's what brought me to this idea and to come full circle, once we were at that show, what we went in as as a goof, I realized I knew every single song to Rick Springfield. And that <laughs> I did not see that coming. And that literally made me think, this is one of those, you know, we did a podcast on the Bee Gees a while ago. This is one of those nights where I was like, okay, this is a very underappreciated, often made fun of uh, musician that's got a damn good catalog of music. So that's my intro. What's yours? Um, well, well, first of all, when you, when you called me, you know, kind of breathless and, and frantic and, and, still, and bleeding. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I wasn't there, so I couldn't, you know, run a test, a battery of tests on you, but I'm sure you were in shock. Um, <laughs> yeah. but when you did tell me that this whole thing occurred at a Rick Springfield concert, I did kind of like cock my head to the side, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't blame you. I, I would have too. <laughs> And then uh, I mean, but I was kind of like, okay. I mean, I saw Survivor at Cornfest in 1999, so uh, okay, you know, to each his own. Oh, the search is over. Yeah. But certainly, I mean, I I will admit that I wasn't really familiar with his catalog before that. Like, you know, okay, even growing up, it, it wasn't until later on, even you know, kind of after you told me that story, that I actually started looking into him. And I'll I'll cop to when you told me <laughs> that you were seeing Rick Springfield. I thought of two songs that I associated <laughs> with him, just two. One yeah. of them is Jesse's Girl, uh, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. And the other one is Take Me Home Tonight, which is, <laughs> which is not actually a Rick Springfield right. song. It's, it's yeah. Eddie Munn, but I thought it was Rick Springfield. I thought that was a Rick Springfield song. So. Well, thematically, it sounds like a Rick Springfield song. And actually, that's going to be one of the central things uh, as we go through this, is a lot of... Uh, this so this is going to sound like an insult or, or or something like and a lot of his music reminds me of other stuff like his okay. his 80s music his 80s rock stuff reminds me of stuff by like Eddie Money or or John Waite or sure, other yeah. bands like that now i'm not actually yeah. sure about the timeline of like when his stuff came out and when others like whether or not he inspired other stuff but even some of his more re mm. recent like 2000s era rock that you're going to talk about some of that some of those songs remind me of other songs from this era and everything like that sure. and i wouldn't say that he's not an artist who kind of like creates his own genre an he's originator not he's not an originator or a trendsetter or something like that he's not a visionary he's more of a kind of chameleon in that he can he can take Ooh, term. what is accessible or what is already sort of popular in the musical yeah. sort of zeitgeist 
and he can put a spin on it that is really, really good and really catchy. Yeah. He makes great rock songs. Yes. That don't yeah. necessarily stand out as being, um, and I cannot think of like a, a, another word for this, he might be able to do the best, most catchy version of a popular rock, you know, motif or a genre or, or like a, that particular sound. So I do think he's very talented. He's got a, he's got a great, you know, presence and a great catalog yeah. uh, that we're going to yeah. explore. Um, yeah. But it's not something that I would have necessarily thought of because he's not like a visionary that's, type of thing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm glad. It, obviously, we'll get into a lot more of these details when we dissect songs. Mm. But I think you're you're actually right. Now, here's what's interesting. I've talked about you know the the impetus for this podcast was so the night that I saw him live. But of course, I knew who he was before that. Ironically. My introduction, the first time I heard the name Rick Springfield and saw him was not in music. It was on a soap opera. Right. Now, for, for I'm not sure how many listeners will go back this far, but Rick Springfield was a multi-talented. Yeah, I guess I, to sum up kind of your argument, he's got pop sensibilities. Yeah. I think he knows how to capitalize on what he's good at and what his audience wants. Right. So I don't know if he got a lot of this. Like, I, I don't know which I, I forgive me if I don't know the exact timeline, but I don't know which came out first. If I first heard Jesse's girl on TV, but I know it was or, uh, on MTV, but I know that it ran around the same time. He was actually contracted on general hospital and he was doing that. I started, uh, you know, I, I remember mom watched general hospital. She watched the Luke and Laura saga play out in balls. And, and this was when the funny thing is Rick Springfield, John Stamos and Demi Moore were all on general <laughs> hospital at the same time. Like this must've been just an epic time to be a soap opera fan. But of course I was just a, baby so i don't remember exactly how or when i saw that or if i just heard mom and dad talk about it or whatever but i did know that there was another show that was a star wars ripoff called Battlestar galactica <laughs> that ran on tv and again this is like this you know i honestly don't have any memory of watching the show i was so young that i don't remember watching it i just knew what it was i'm sure i watched it because that and Buck Rogers were like the closest thing to Star Wars that I could remember. So I remember, I, I know I must have watched them and I knew what they were, but I don't, I don't have a visual memory of it. But for to come full circle, Rick Springfield was an actor on that. He was Lieutenant Zach something. Forgive me if I forget his name. Okay. Anyway, his uh, his backstory actually goes back a little bit farther. And the the only thing, just to give listeners an intro into like all the things that Rick Springfield does, and then we'll get into his songs and the reason we're doing the podcast. So he was he was he was an Australian rock star that you know came to the United States, but he was labeled the next Teen Idol. He was supposed to be like a Donny Osmond or a. Um, uh, what was a uh, Partridge family guy, David Cassidy. Yeah. So, and then he came to the United States. He had his own cartoon series, like this show called Miss mission magic, which I've seen on YouTube recently. I've actually watched it. It's pretty, it's stupid, but <laughs> it's a, well, I mean, the Jackson five had a cartoon, but the cool thing I, I found out as I researched this was that he only agreed to do that. He didn't want to be a pop star. He wanted to be a guitar hero and he agreed to do that cartoon because they allowed him to write a new song every week. So he got into the habit of being able to crank out songs at a ridiculous pace, kind of like a staff writer for a label, where you're writing a pop hit every single week. That's your job. And that was why he agreed to do that. And trust me, we'll talk about his acting roles. We'll talk about all the other stuff he does. But before we get into every single song, I just want to say, like you, my, I, like, I was kind of stunned when I saw him live. I'm like, wow. 
I had like this is like you know I said it before he's just underappreciated and for all the times that I probably subconsciously mocked Rick Springfield fans and Rick Springfield music I'm like god if I don't know every single line to all these songs <laughs> all right so let's get into it let's let's actually talk about these songs let's talk about him what is the first song you want to talk about so the first one leading off my list is probably his most popular song, I believe, the one that I knew the most, Jesse's Girl. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl and I want to make her mine. And she's watching him with those eyes. And she's loving with that body. I just know it. And he's holding her. Uh, so I've loved this song for as, as long as I've known about the song. I can't remember <laughs> the first time I heard it, but certainly when it really entered uh, my awareness and stayed there, it was actually in the later 90s. Um, because it was in the movie Boogie Nights, uh, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, like definitely in my top ten, and it is in one of my all-time favorite scenes in any movie you know uh, ever made, um, which is when uh, Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, and Tom Jane, all very strung out, very high, go to uh, this drug kingpin played by Alfred Molina. And go to his place to try and basically steal coke from him, or they try they try to steal money by selling him a bag of like baking powder or something like that. Yeah. Um. And they they try to rip him off, and it's Alfred Molina in this crazy like you know seventies or early eighties mustache, <laughs> just wearing a bathrobe and a speedo, walking around in this like Scarface like you know like a mansion or something like that, while his Asian houseboy is setting off firecrackers. The scene is so intense. Yes, because, it is. <laughs> because of how strung out they are, because of the situation, their guns that are hit, like you, we see guns like hidden on guys, and they're r- ripping off this guy. They, you just want them to get out of there because you're sure these guys are going to die. They're going to screw it up because they're incompetent and they're coked up out of their heads. And th- throughout the whole time, this guy is just playing before Peter Quill, the Star Lord, had his awesome mixtapes. <laughs> Ray Hat Jackson, or whatever his name was, had these himself. And one of the songs is Jesse's Girl, and I love the way it was used. Now, cut to several months later, I actually I had the soundtracks because the Boogie Nights soundtrack came in two volumes, and I had them both. And I distinctly remember this was either my junior or senior year of high school. Um, the homecoming parade, like there was some sort of like movement or, or like a, like a like a student like le- driven like thing that they didn't want the homecoming parade to just be about the football team and the cheerleaders and like the sports. There was some sort of campaign to get basically every club or every organization, every sport, anything that was going on in the fall to join in this parade. Basically, the the, the school right. principal was like, if you guys can arrange it. Fine, whatever. We don't care. So we basically got this girl that I uh, this, I was friends with. Her name was Robin, and we got her car to be the flo- the designated float for the drama club, like the theater department. 
<laughs> and it was me and Drew, maybe my friend JT and Robin driving. And we just we just raided like the, the wardrobe closet from the theater department and just put on these silly, silly, stupid costumes and just rode in her car playing this song. I don't know why, but playing this song on repeat over and over again really loudly as we drove down 2nd Street towards the high school <laughs> throwing candy at people. Um, so yeah, that has nothing to do with the song, but that's that's my story. That's how I interpret it. it but it's just wow. It is a it is a great like just catchy song. Ah yeah, I, I, yeah. I like it. It's sort of it. It feels sort of like the last you know episode that we did when we talked about the cars. Um, one of my favorite songs was my best friend's girl, and this yeah. one feels kind of like a a sister song to that one. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, good. You know what? This is funny. I'm I'm fascinated. The reason I love doing these podcasts is because I would have never made that connection. Now that you mentioned the Boogie Nights connection, I totally remember that scene. But that's that wouldn't have jumped out into my head. So I'm I I love having these conversations because not that I'm saying it, I have been there. <laughs> but if anybody has ever been in a situation where you're in a you're in a room that you don't want to be in and you're coked up out of your mind and all you can think about is trying to get out of there and somebody is launching fireworks. <laughs> trust me, that's a really stressful situation. Like that is godly awful. Not, but again, I, I wouldn't know. Right. Right. No, I think this is, this is great though, because my visual, like, you know, obviously because of our age gap, I remember this video and I probably remember the video is what, you know, this is early MTV. This came out in 81. So this was like the dawn of MTV. But I just remember the brick wall that they vac- that they spray painted on. Like the video, for some reason, the that's nostalgic memory for me. Is I remember Rick Springfield spray pa- vandalizing a wall. And I think he wrote Jesse's Girl on it or something. But that was, that was something I remember. And I just remember this going back in history. Like this was a song that honestly was aided by MTV. This literally became a number one hit because of the video, because he was a teenage heartthrob at the time. And it makes me wonder, had it not had a video, because this came out and the song came out in like March of 81. And I don't, I think MTV launched in August. If I'm, if memory serves, I want to say MTV aired in August 81 and this song was still in rotation, but this had a video. And again, it wasn't a performance video. It was, it was like, there was a story to the video, which was rare at the time in the early MTV videos. But this then all of a sudden this song made the climb to number one. It became a number one hit and it got, it got played like crazy. And it's funny now looking back and I like, and then we'll come to this towards the end, but Talking about this song, actually, with Rick Springfield is what saved my life that night and saved him from killing me in Orange County because we had a conversation and I sided with him when he was mad. And we'll get into the details later. But this, you know, so this is always going to hold a special part in my heart because this got me out of, you know, being born to the undead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So next on my or the first song on my list, then I'm going to go with I've Done Everything For You.
this song, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, Ryan, when you talked about Rick Springfield's chameleon skills as a as an artist, kind of sponging up other material. This song was written by Sammy Hagar in 1977, and I've heard Sammy Hagar's version of it. And chord structure, progression, melody, lyrics, everything is identical. Rick Springfield's version is identical. He did a carbon copy of the song. But his is better. <laughs> it's, it's it's like it's one of those things where you and I have talked about cover songs. You're like, well, why redo the exact same version of it if you can't improve on the original? Well, he did. So, <laughs> so there you go. This was actually, I think this was the follow-up single to Jesse's Girl. Uh, it was on the same album, Working Class Dog, which I think was like Rick Springfield's third album, to be honest with you. But I've heard, yeah, I, comparing it to Sammy Hager, I don't know if you've heard them both, but Sammy's is fine. Rick's is just a little bit more catchy. It's, it, it, I don't know why. It just seems like it. And then, you know, and I've noticed this with a lot of songs from this era, and I've mentioned this during like the Cars podcast that we did and some of these other ones in Prince podcast, seeing them played live with like a full band, like the guitars rock a little harder. There's a little more distortion now. There's a like a, a thicker bass than the way they recorded. So some of these songs that sounded like pop songs now sound like hard rock songs. Mm-hmm. And that's just something I noticed from seeing it live. But this uh, this is up there with I Get Excited, which uh, you played in the intro, which is like one of like just a rocker. This yeah. is just a really good rock song. It's good. It's catchy. It's still kind of got that teeny bopper matinee pop idol kind of thing. But unless you've seen him live or dead, you know, as I have, I've seen them both. You have no idea how hard he actually rocks out until until you see a song like this played live. What's your? Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm gonna say this a couple of times, but this is one. Of, this might be my favorite of his songs. <laughs> the reason is because I don't know which one is actually my favorite. I've got a, I've got a list, but like even some of them on your list are some of my favorite. So you know what? You know what? Just say that for every song. <laughs> I probably will. Um, yeah, this one might be my favorite of his. Um, I, I, well, one of the reasons, as I was kind of saying, I think one of the reasons why I'm going to say that is because a lot of his songs, I think, uh, on my list sound similar. But again, that's not yeah. a bad thing. But it's funny because until I actually started like researching some of these songs just for this podcast, I didn't know this was a cover. I had no idea ah. about that. Mm. But I was listening to the song. I was like, you know what? Something about it. It feels like kind of like there's something like driving about it. It feels like a driving song, a road song or something like that. And of all the things, of all the songs in the world, I was listening to it and I was like, for some reason, this reminds me of the song The Girl Gets Around by Sammy Hagar from the movie Footloose. (laughs) I was like, why the heck is that connection? And then I looked up the song. I was like... It's a Sammy Hagar song. I, didn't even I had no idea, but I compared it to a different Sammy Hagar song. So that was just, yeah, it was weird. Um, and about your your comment that um, that you think like this one, they're so similar, but this one is just a little bit better. I almost interjected this comment as you were talking, and I kind of caught myself because it seemed so. Uh, poignant, but Springfield's version feels like it has more blood in it, more blood going to it. Um, There's just like a a little bit more of an energy about it. It's just, there's more life to it, I guess. It's just like the way, uh, but and then I was like, ooh, that's a loaded term. I didn't even realize it was. um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Take that beak from out my heart. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, no, you're you're definitely right though. I think I think that's an accurate description of the difference between the two. This there was just a different energy about this. Like you know it, whether it was you know spawned by the devil or not, you know it doesn't matter. It was just this was <laughs> this had this song had a different drive to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good call on that. Um, I'm gonna go again. If you don't mind? I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and I'm gonna go with uh, my next the next song on my list as we'll alternate is "Don't Talk to Strangers" from 1982. Why don't you tell me someone is loving you? Cause you're my girl, some say it's no longer true. You're seeing some slick continental dude. I'm begging you, please don't talk to strangers. Baby, don't you talk. Don't talk to strangers. You know he'll only use you. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. This was, uh, I believe, from his next album, and this was the follow-up to his uh, Working Class Dog. This song reached number two on the charts. It was, <laughs> believe it or not, it was, I, I checked this out, the song that held it from number one was Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> that, was the, that was the song that kept it from the number one spot. But uh, this was his second biggest selling hit of all time. Um, I, did some, I did a little recon on this song, and he wrote the song while touring for his Working Class Dog, while he was fooling around on tour and cheating on his girlfriend so he assumed that if I'm on the road and I'm fooling around and cheating on my girlfriend she must be too so he wrote the song almost kind of hypocritically as if he's like saying well you know don't talk to strangers while I'm gone you know blah 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 guys are trying to swoop in and pick you up even though I'm doing it so interesting but the song the recording of the song I think this was interesting because for a guy that was a guitar hero this song is it kind of captured a predominantly keyboard sound. Now, granted, this was the era, the early 80s were the era of synthesizers yeah. and in the 80s. You know, we've talked about this with other podcasts, the other bands we've reviewed. But this was kind of this was a very kind of a predominantly almost melancholy, somber keyboard sound. And guitars were in the background for this. But I mentioned this before when I saw this live, this became this was all guitars up front. This was definitely a much more rocking, harder song than the album version of it. And it even had a darker feel to it when I, you know, about, you know, for a pop hit that was such a big radio hit and everything that he he has a really, really. And I'll talk about this with a number of songs coming up. He's got kind of a weird mastery of making pop hits out of darkness and distrust and infidelity and cheating and like we'll get it and then of course you know dying and coming back to life you know we'll we'll talk about those things and and as we go on but he you know this is one of those songs that at first glance it's like you almost forget about the fact that this is a, this song is dark well but it was a hit before, it was a pop hit. before he was what he is now he was australian so <laughs> yeah that's true that's true. What are your thoughts on Don't Talk to Strangers? Um, a lot of them just kind of like mirror what you said. I looked into sort of like the process that came sort of inspired by this one, but it really was, I mean, my first note about this one, and you kind of touched upon it, was of the songs that we have for our list, and especially since I just mentioned before how so many of them sound alike, this one doesn't. <laughs> this one is a notable exception. <laughs> I felt like this one doesn't sound like the rest of his other hits. Uh, right. And I think the, the synth and just the atmosphere of the song is just a little bit different it's it Mm -hmm. just feels like more of a haunting sort of stalking type of song 
Yeah, one of the weird comparisons I have, and I don't know if you'll you'll feel this way, but the reaction to it, my personal reaction to the song was similar to a song like Every Breath You Take by the mm-hmm. Police, mm-hmm. where you listen to it and you're free, if you listen to it on the surface level, you're like, oh, that's a cute pop hit. You're like, oh, that's such a, it's a pretty ballad. And then you dig deep into the song and all of a sudden you're like, wait, Sting is talking about stalking it. He's, he's a peeping Tom. You know, it's like one of those. This is kind of like my reaction to this. It's like one of those songs like once you like I feel like he's got this talent for fooling people that don't want to roll up their sleeves and get dirty mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that's my thought on that. All right. What do you got next? All right. My next one. Uh, one of my favorite songs of his. Affair of the Heart. this one to you somewhat in joking that I hope this is like the song in the next Thor movie <laughs> Thor Love and Thunder um, the, the way uh, the immigrant song was used by Taika Waititi in Thor Ragnarok I kind of want him to use this one um, because, because this one, it, it, it kind of sounds like a song that Mark Mothersbaugh did for the Ragnarok <laughs> score and like the guitar part has just this like this driving thing like I picture Thor or hopefully we'll see uh, you know the, the female version the Jane Foster version if she gets the hammer like riding a horse into battle or something like that or just like riding the rainbow yeah. bridge, doing something crazy um, it just it, but it's like it's a little bit it's not it doesn't have like the classic rock Led Zeppelin like crazy feel it's a little bit more new a little bit more kind of like 80s dazzling like a little bit more of an arena rock song um, actually just, yeah that's yeah. a that's a good comparison yeah but I just love it and I feel like it kind of has it and it's just yeah I, it, it is I, I jokingly but also seriously it is one of my favorite <laughs> Rick Springfield songs I love this one but that's it yeah I just I hope yeah. this is in the movie Thor Love and Thunder oh my god now I do too I totally love that yeah this was this was interesting because this came off of his 1983 album Living in Oz mm-hmm. and what you got to realize here now we've kind of touched on this and so to Rick Springfield was banging out a hit album a year which nowadays is just unheard of you know it's just absolutely unheard of but this was like a thing back then you know he was cranking out hits left and right and staying in the public eye that way what i found really interesting about this song kind of like what i talked about before was media mtv magazines and stuff were selling him as the clean cut pretty boy next david cassidy you know that's that's what they were doing but he was delivering these like these catchy hard rock songs but they had such dark lyrics and very adult themes for pop radio that i think i think like teenage girls just completely ignored 
or they didn't or they didn't listen it just didn't seem like anybody did but there's the the whole idea of this song is it's not the boy next door that tiger beat and teen magazine and 17 were selling us you know this song these these are all songs about affairs and 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 you know all the these themes that we talked about before adultery and things like that so and and i thought i agree with you what you described the the sound of the recording itself was kind of like a weird like heavy metal 80 like early 80s synthesized heavy metal like there was like i don't know there was just something there was this driving guitar riff that actually was some of the most distorted guitar drift like i mean he wasn't much for using guitar effects pedals he just used a lot you know it was just a lot of overdrive but this song had distortion on the guitar part which was kind of rare for a lot of the stuff in the early 80s and just this dark synth track i thought was just really badass <laughs> yeah Okay, the next song on my list is called Souls. So here's the thing about this one, and I'll never forget. This is weird because the connection I have to this song was specific to the video. It was literally a visual reference that I have every time I hear this song. I'll never forget the first time I saw the video. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, I thought he had what all kids for Halloween do when they want to be a hobo how they put makeup on their face like to look like a beard <laughs> like, like dirty face makeup you know i swear to hey, god wait a minute, wait a as a I did, kid i did that for a halloween costume <laughs> when i was 24 yeah I, right exactly exactly i did that for wolverine this year but, <laughs> no but it was like like all kids just put makeup on their face and give themselves a five o'clock shadow and so as a kid i didn't realize that's actually beard stubble I had no idea. I didn't make that connection. So I saw this video debut and I'm like, why is Rick Springfield dressed like a hobo? <laughs> that was, that was my connection. I'm like, he's got a hobo face now. I, you know, cause I don't, also bear in mind too, like, you know, facial hair goes with the genres. Like the seventies were big in the mustache era. And then the eighties, everybody was clean cut. And then, you know, now we're in an era of everybody's got a beard and all this stuff. It was big, but no, no, no rock stars had facial hair. None of like not even scruff in the eighties. That was like just a nobody did it. So I thought that was weird. This song was also from the Living in Oz album that I, we talked about before. Uh, it featured again a very dark theme, um, hard rock and guitars hidden behind keyboards. I thought this had when you lyrically dissect it. I, I thought it had kind of like a remember Poison's Mama's Fallen Angel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it had a little bit of that tone to it. You know, the lyrics are about a boy and a girl that come to L.A. seeking fame and fortune. Mm -hmm. They get used. They get abused. They get chewed up and spit out, blah, blah, blah. They get into drugs, and then the scene, one of them almost commits suicide. And then they finally meet up and realize that they are what they've been looking for in each other. And the song leaves you kind of wondering if they were – if they're going to – like, it's it's open-ended. It's like you wonder if they got together, if they if – they, killed themselves in a Romeo and Juliet type of thing, or did they leave LA? It's it, it, like, it doesn't resolve. It's very dark. 
And, you know, in hindsight now, looking back, that should have shown me the signs that the guy that wrote this was, you know, undead, you know, but I didn't know it at the time. And we'll cover that. But, you know, I wish now, if I'd only known then what I know now. What are your thoughts on Souls? Do you, do you have any? Have you heard it? <laughs> I, yeah, I've heard it, and I don't have a whole lot about this. Um, I, I definitely, what I keyed into lyrically was, yeah, the the young lovers, like, coming to L.A., like, meaning, like, the sort of journey. It reminded me of the movie True Romance. Yeah. Um, even, I mean, there's nothing similar about them musically, but the Tom Petty song, Into the Great Wide Open. Uh, and, and Actually, there's well, all, lyrically, it, there's a lot, yeah. Yeah, it, well, it, and the, the video, just because of Johnny Depp, is when he was the young, you know, <laughs> yeah. young Eddie Rebel. Rob and everything. Eddie Rebel, yeah. Um, I, I did see this video a long time ago. Now I can, I can totally picture the fake beard. Well, it, what, it, what looked like a fake beard. There was something else going on in that video and I'll need to rewatch it, but I remember a scene when he's in some room, some like a uh, room or like laboratory or something. And there's like a, a monitor behind him, but it's mm-hmm. like circular and the rest of his band or something is like pressed up against them like this, but it's like this red thing and they start spinning. And I just remember thinking, I was like, is he standing in front of like a <laughs> washer, like a, like a laundry or something? Did he put the band in the laundry? And he's just like, they're just washing around. <laughs> that's, that's all I remember. But yeah. That's cool. Nice. Nice. All right, this is going to be fun. So now we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Let's get to the next song on my list is called Our Ships Are Sinking. If I'm the one who calls your shipwreck life And right to the fire And I'll bear this cross of love Enough for you and love for me This song, we've, we've taken a leap in time right now. We fast-forwarded a bit on the clock, and this is the first song to make our list so far of what I consider to be his vampire years. This came out in 2013, smack dab in the middle of his impossible resurgence. And this song captured all the like the same elements and, and the things that made his 80s work famous. You know, it has a great guitar riff. It's got a catchy melody. It's got clever lyrics. And and he incorporated the effective like ah you know ooh ah to get the crowd chant which was you know really big nowadays. Thirty seconds to Mars does it. Mm-hmm. Tokyo Hotel does it. You know all those type of things. But he was not just doing it. He was not just like doing the whoa like another song that we'll talk about later on. He was actually this is he's doing it as the ruler of the undead now. And at this point, his voice is every bit as strong and his guitar playing is every bit as good. At, and the live performance that I saw in his stage show got bigger and bigger and better. And it's it's almost insane. You know, I again, I should have seen the writing on the wall. There's no guy at 65 years old that should come out that that's got the physique of, 
you know, a, a 20 year old basketball player in the NBA and destroy a guitar. Like that's just, you just, you're not supposed to do that. And God, I, I could kick myself for not noticing that this guy is a vampire. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. What uh, do you have any thoughts on the song? Um, it reminds me of a lot of other stuff. Like this song reminds me, it has, it has a lot of that two thousands era, like modern kind of rock songs. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. you mentioned a few of them, but it like, it reminds me of like the cartel or the used, you know, sure. yeah. like that that had kind of a similar sound, but, uh, yeah, there's definitely something supernatural about his, his presence. Yeah. That yeah. Can... yeah. But you're definitely right though. I mean, there's, you know, I, I agree with everything you said at the beginning. Like, he's not going to win any awards for being a vanguard kind of thing. Right. That was but, the word I was thinking, like a vanguard yeah. or a revolutionary. Yeah, know. right. But he certainly knew how to capitalize on his strengths. And the last song that I'm going to talk about, which we'll get to, is, you know, encompasses that perfectly. But this song, yeah, this, this song does kind of capture that early, like that, that 2000s, mid-2000s modern rock. There were a lot of these 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 rock bands that were playing pop songs just with heavy heavy guitar tracks and stuff. So that yeah, that falls perfectly in line. You're, I, I agree with your description. All right, my next song is one of my favorites, "Love Somebody." I can see the path you're cutting. Cause me a little piece of my heart. I can see the doors you're shutting. Cause you open up the stop. A lot of his songs, I, I can feel them as big arena rock concert numbers. This one, to me, feels like a good closer. This one feels like a, something like, you know, the, the encore performance or second encore or something. Or maybe just to close out, like, the first set. Um, but it just has that sort of, like, feel to me. And, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have paid that close attention to the lyrics uh, if I didn't know the experience that you had been through. But I... I, I <laughs> I think it's telling, and, and it might be revealing um, if you look at the second verse of this song. The lyrics are, Your eyes are wild, your skin's so white, you're undernourished and overfed. She's got the teeth, she knows how to bite, because when you bit, I bled. I mean... Oh, God, I know. I know. I can't... It, like, it seems so freaking obvious right now that this was, you know, he's describing the night he turned. Yeah, well, anyway, if, if I can capitalize on what you were just saying, this song was the closer. <laughs> like, your, your, your assumptions are 100% accurate. This was actually how he ended the show. Okay. And, and it fits so damn well. It was perfect for an arena rock, all house lights on, everybody standing at their feet. It, we, it, just, it just fit perfectly. This is how you close a show. This is perfect. Now, the details of the song are this. It was from uh, 1984. Again, what we've said so far is he was banging out an album a year. Mm -hmm. This was from 1984's album Hard to Hold, which was the soundtrack to his movie Hard to Hold, starring Rick Springfield playing a character 
loosely based on Rick Springfield. I don't think I've ever seen the movie, to be honest with you. I, I knew the soundtrack. I remember the video. Never saw it because I wasn't you know, a huge fan at the time of all this stuff. I was just aware of it. But I did remember this felt like a Purple Rain. <laughs> I remember <laughs> there was something weird about this that it felt like the story about Prince recorded an album of Purple Rain that was a soundtrack to his movie Purple Rain about Prince playing Prince. You know, this is, <laughs> this is exactly what it was. So it, I thought I just thought it was funny. Now, lyrically, if you break down the song, lyrically, the song's about him realizing, and this happened to his character, it's a soundtrack to a movie, so he's playing out his character, realizing that this woman was kind of slumming it when she met him and thought she could make him perfect only finding out that she's not who or he's not who she thought he was and so he's kind of asking to be released and saying go out and find someone who who someone else who's not me the song is like this weird sort of i interpret it now as it was strangely like foreboding or or foreshadowing actually of of him becoming a vampire it was also like the final encore song every night and the crowd responded, you know, as if it was a closer. It's it's a perfect closer, but it also hints at the horror that was to come from all attendees at his concerts every night that he played. And he released his evil horde of vampire women into the night to wreak havoc. I mean, the last thing I remember about his show was he strummed his guitar with like a, a, a dozen roses, but the thorn of the roses cut his finger his fingers bleeding just to whet the appetite of the crowd. And then he licks his finger, licks the blood off his finger. And then next thing you know, mass hysteria erupts and all his vampire women go out and try and kill everybody. So that's how he ends his shows. Do you, you know, anything else you want to add? <laughs> to that? No. <laughs> all right, moving on. The next song I'm going to go, I'm, I'm again going to fast track back into the future. And uh, let's talk about what's Victoria's secret. Tell me her name, because I really want to see her. Tell me her game, because I need an exit strategy. Oh, what a tragedy. But I know she's not what's best for me. And I know she'll cause me harm. to know one thing what's victoria's secret tell me if the clothes she wears will expose all of my weakness woman i just can't let go till i know victoria's secret whispering a love song in my ear victoria's secret will harm me today do i really need to know her name you show me this song was another one of my faves from the vampires, and it's more just a visceral kind of sound. Like, this was a favorite just because it was catchy. It came off its 2008 album, Venus in Overdrive, and it had that album actually was pretty good. It had a couple memorable tracks that didn't make my list, like the songs like Miss That Someday. Um, this song is kind of, uh, you know, it's not, it's certainly not original. You've touched on this before. It's definitely not original. It's kind of a carbon copy of like a Jesse's Girl sound. Mm -hmm. The structure of it is very, very similar. But 
it's kind of like you know if if the formula works you know if it don't if it's not broke don't fix it and that's kind of the way i feel about this song like it's, there's just <laughs> there's not a whole lot of substance to it there's probably not a whole lot you can even add to it <laughs> but it's just one of those songs that 30 years after jesse's girl this song you know honestly the lyrics are terrible to this song <laughs> they're not they're not good but it's just got the like. It's just got the same kind of catch to like a Jesse's Girl, and that's the way I feel. I like it. I'll put it on as a no brainer, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and then just go with it. So it, you know, it, like I guess the last thing I would say is maybe if somebody dared him to write a song about Victoria's <laughs> Secret, this is what he would come up with on a dare. But again, you know, I it's catchy. It's catchy as hell. It is. It is. Yeah. And the weird thing is, lyrically, he's singing. Uh, he's singing in the past tense when he references "She'll be the death of me," because he's already dead when he recorded this one. That's yeah. what I realized. You know, afterwards, you know, now coming full circle, I'm like, oh, of course, you're not. You know, this isn't like a mythological thing or a hypothetical. You're talking. You're you're dead. Yeah. I mean, what's Victoria's Secret is a question that I've been asking since I was a little kid. <laughs> we all have. I still don't know. Um, the other question. Was this? Do you know if this was ever used in a fashion runway or promo event? Because that's what it feels like. Like when you, I do like, not know, and it certainly would have made sense if he wrote it for that. Like, yeah, like I don't know if like writing it out there, but if he was like commissioned by Victoria's Secret or a modeling agency or something to basically write a song, write a rock song to play for our fashion shoot or our fashion show, or like well, a runway actually, event. Actually, that's funny because Victoria's Secret does a year end. Uh, they do a fashion show on TV every yeah, yeah, every yeah. year right around the holidays this would have made perfect sense for yeah. a runway walk that's, that's all i can think of like what i was listening to <laughs> because you're right i was listening to this i was like okay it's catchy but also dumb <laughs> like so yeah I was like, yep. oh. like i said honestly this is this is one of those it makes my list because it's catchy and there's nothing more i can say about <laughs> it that's it what do you got next all right my next one is human touch This is one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is only, purely, just because it's got the lyric, she's got the love monkey riding on her back. <laughs> God. How did I know? I should have known that you were going there. Yeah, That's amazing. Um, you you have always loved love monkeys. <laughs> I, was that possibly my email password, you know, back in, uh, a long time ago? Time to change it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything cycles back after 20 years. <laughs> now it's Love Monkey, but with like, you know, uh, an at symbol or something for one of the <laughs> Love, Mon- um, Love Monkey 3. 
<laughs> so I, I looked this one up, and it was his biggest hit in the UK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but his only hit to make the top 40 there. Uh, so in the UK, he's considered a one-hit wonder, kind of. like. Oh, my God, that's funny. But, that's it, awesome. but the, the that's... thing is, it's not for Jesse's Girl, one of the songs you would expect. Like, they, like they don't like that's not a, a song there that they really have any reference. Like, this was his <laughs> one real breakout hit. Um, and, yeah, it's just... He's a one-hit wonder in London. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was just looking up, and I just found this on Wikipedia as I was just kind of just doing very cursory. The Wikipedia entry for this song says that the video had connections to Marvel's Captain Marvel and the Nova Corps. Now, the Captain Marvel they would be referencing would not be the movie version um, that came out, but rather a precursor to that character from the, the 60s and 70s. Okay. Now, I watched the video and... No. <laughs> like, it's, okay. it's science fiction. Yeah, I thought, like, yeah, yeah, here's, well, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I saw the video too, and I always thought it was like weird science or Tron yeah. or something. Like, I, I don't or know. war like, games. Yeah, I don't know who wrote that, it is who submitted that to the Wikipedia entry, but <laughs> there's nothing about Captain Marvel or Nova or any Marvel comic specific things in this video. I don't know what they're basing that on, but no, they're wrong. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, I would have never gotten that. But <laughs> funny. Um, okay, so we're getting down to the end. We're coming down the stretch now. I'm going to again bring it back forward to the future, and I'm going to talk about the man that never was. I won't wait for an invitation. I can't stand for the sacrifice. I won't die as an unknown soldier. I won't even try. Sometimes you make me play the fool. Sometimes you use me like a tool. You are the whip that drives a mule, and I bring the goods right back to you. You break my back, you break my balls, you break my heart just because sometimes you make me feel like just like the man that never was. So here's where this song comes into play. This is a uh, in 2013. I don't know how many people saw this. I saw this. Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters were doing an HBO documentary about Sound City Studios in L.A. I don't know if you remember that. Did you ever see that? I haven't seen it, but I know of the project. It was like an eight-part something. No, no, no. I'm sorry. The Sound City thing was like an hour-and-a-half documentary. I was thinking of uh, the next album they released. But uh, it was really cool. It was about, he, rec- he recruited a bunch of famous people who all had recorded songs at this famous studio. And he brought them in and did an album for the soundtrack. But it was just a fascinating thing. So Rick came in. Because Rick Springfield had recorded, I think, all his big hits there. I think Working Class Dog and some Living in Oz, I think, were recorded there. So Dave Grohl brought him in, and Rick did a song called The Man That Never Was. And this was one of his original songs. It was very – if you've ever heard it, and I know we're going to play a clip for the audience, it's very Foo Fighters influenced. It sounds almost like a dirty punk rock L.A. sound. And Rick's lyrics, though, were based on this weird World War II story – about British soldiers, and this is this is actually true. He's talked about this in interviews. The lyrics came from a story that he read about British soldiers that were about to be overrun by Nazis. They were they were in like a no win situation, like a Rogue One situation, mm-hmm. and they dressed up as Germans and laid in German clothes. So when and they they put like a map of a fake. I don't know, artillery or something along the lines uh, in one of the guy's soldiers. So when the Nazis came in and killed them all, 
they thought that, you know, they when they blew up the place, they came in, they thought that they were real dead soldiers, real dead Germans. And they thought that there was, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm screwing up the details of the story. The gist of it is they planted in the dead bodies that they knew they were going to die. They had a fake map of something that they wanted the British to go to def- or the Germans to go defend. And so the Germans found this and then went off and defended this place that the British weren't going to attack and they were able to sweep around from behind. So just like a Rogue One situation, these people gave their lives for a greater cause. And I think it's based on a book or memoirs of something from somebody that actually survived from this. But it's just it's a it's a fascinating story that he wrote this story about a guy that was the guy that wrote the story wasn't there where he was supposed to be. And then all these details. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of getting off track. But again, the coolest thing about this was it further demonstrates that Rick Springfield's immortal nature and his growing desire to share experiences and stories of past lives and horrible deaths. Because once he became the concubine of the devil and, and like was reborn into vampirism, like he probably has all this past knowledge and has experienced past lives and stuff that we couldn't even begin to dream about. So... As I hear the song and I listen to it, it makes me wonder now, is this Rick Springfield talking about a story he read or did he live it? Was he there? You know, I mean, where is where is all the, you know, there's a whole there's a whole nother thing here that we haven't really considered. So that's where I'm at with this. Yeah. Wow. Whew. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about that. but So I only had two notes for this one. <laughs> I only had two notes. One was Foo Fighters. <laughs> and then the other one is what's up with this song <laughs> <laughs> well perfect wait first of all let me jump in real quick isn't the term foo fighters a reference to world war ii anyway i i feel like foo fighters was a wet like a bomb that was on world war ii era planes i think that's where they got the name from you know what? I'm going to have to research that. I'm going to have to look that up because I believe I've heard the term Foo Fighters in reference to World War II. But, okay, go ahead. Uh, I, that's that's all I got. So <laughs> Okay, and what's up with the song? Right on. All right, so what do you got next? <laughs> all right, my last song is Love is All Right Tonight. I'm picking up my baby tonight, This one is, by a wide margin, my favorite Rick Springfield song. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't have much more else to say about it. It's, it's the first song from his album, Working Class Dog. We've mentioned it. This was the same album that had uh, Jesse's Girl and I've Done Everything For You. 
Um, actually, that album title, Working Class Dog, comes from a lyric in this song. But beyond that, I like. I mean, it's just there's no deeper, you know, connection to it and everything. It's just when I make the playlist and I listen to it for this, like this is the song that I'm just like, yeah, this one stands out. I this is my favorite. Yeah, no, no, no cool. No other greater meaning beside it. I just <laughs> like listening to this song more than the others. You know what's funny about this song? The only thing I can hear. Uh, as I listen to the song, it's it's kind of a messed up song. Like if you like lyrically, I think we talked about this before the podcast at one point. But it, if you break down the lyrics and strip it out, strip the lyrics from the melody and the hook and everything, it's it's a guy basically talking about taking a girl on a, out on a date, planning on getting laid, and then telling her dad, like giving him like the slap on the face, being like, "Don't worry about it. you didn't see nothing. Now beat it." You know that that kind of thing. It's it's really like a slap in the face to every dad that's had a teenage daughter. <laughs> I know, and I love that about it. Yeah, he, he talks about her daddy the whole time through the through the <laughs> through the song. Yeah, it's 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 like oh, it's so disrespectful. And this was an early hit for him, but it's just like, my God, what kind of arrogance you have? But we've all been there, you know. We've all felt that way. I I remember being that young and arrogant and taking girls out, and like the guys like bring her home at so and so, and you're like, yep, you got it, bud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I dated a girl whose father was like back when he was in high school however many years early he was like a championship wrestler and he asked me if I, <laughs> he asked me if i wrestled and i was like no nah, that's kind of dumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was my first date with this girl <laughs> nice nice well done all right all right what well, do you have to bring us home yeah let's get to the very last song and this is this is important on so many levels and this is important for my salvation to be completely honest with you but the last song i'll make you happy come down to this 2004 was the year rick springfield had released 11 albums from the 70s and 80s almost one album a year then something happened from 1988 to 1999 he was a ghost completely vanished and then in 1999 after an 11 year hiatus he came back with a new album that wasn't very good but generated interest in his career again and then Five more years till 2004's Shock, Anger, Denial, Acceptance was released, and I saw him on this tour. During his disappearance, he didn't act either. And in the 15 years since 2004, he's released nine more albums, and you can't turn on the TV without seeing him. Yet the shows he's been cast, Lucifer on Supernatural, American Horror Story, True Detective, because he made a deal with the devil who gave him immortality in exchange for promoting evil and devil worship. Plus, as a vampire now, he only wants to shoot at night anyway, so it works perfectly to his advantage. And he tours nonstop, and he rocks out, and he destroys guitars, and strums red roses into the crowd. And he's 70. He's freaking 70 years old. If you still believe he's mortal, which I don't. But back to the song. Okay, anyway, I'm, I'm, 
this is all ugh, I can't even I'm trying to defend myself right now. But back to the song. He would have been 55 years old, according to human calendars, if you if he buys into that stuff. The night that I saw him, he came out, destroyed four guitars that night, seduced every single woman in the crowd, tore his wife beater in half, ripped he was he was ripped like an ungodly athlete. He was never in he was never in that good of shape when he was on General Hospital or on Battlestar Galactic or anything. But I'll Make You Happy was the song he opened with. And this song whether a Rick Springfield song or not, this song is as good a rock song to open a concert as anybody you'll ever see. I put this to an audience. If Guns N' Roses had recorded this, if Slash had played this song at the, as the opener to a rock show, if the Pumpkins had played a song like this, this just literally launched the audience into hysteria. And I got to admit, the night that I saw him, remember, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, I went to the show as a complete goof. And then when the guitar riff starts for this song, I was hooked from moment one. That's all I got to say. It's got it, the, the, the synchronicity, the, the, the wavelengths that were on for this thing. Because <laughs> the, my, my one note for this one, and you mentioned if Guns N' Roses or Slash had played this <laughs> yeah. My one note for this one was, it reminds me of Velvet Revolver. Yes. I was like, this song could have been on that album. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's honestly that's a perfect note. That's that's kind of that's kind of it. This song. And this is this was the weird thing that I discovered that night. The weird thing is it was almost like, you know, kind of like what we talked about during the Bee Gees podcast, where they kind of got lumped in with a badge. They became their name became taboo through no fault of their own. Rick Springfield kind of had that same thing where he was kind of relegated to this like 80s pop star idoldom trying to make a comeback in the late 2000s and it was kind of laughed off i admit i freely admit i went to this show ready to laugh at the fact that i was at a rick springfield concert <laughs> i was ready to buy a t-shirt for the tour as a joke to say i was there and and then all of a sudden i'm like oh my god this is awesome and of course it helps that i'm surrounded me and jackie daniels were the only two males in the audience that helps <laughs> but my god that was a, uh, you know, I want to say for the eight hours that encompassed that night, the two hours that he was on stage was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. Rick Springfield is one of those artists that you may think of as only a one-hit wonder like the UK does, according to Ryan. <laughs> but considering considering he's had dozens of top 40 hits since the early 80s, his mastery of sex appeal, charisma, melody, and a catchy rock riff is undeniable. And surprisingly enough, his albums released post-vampirism are every bit as hook-friendly and rocking as the stuff recorded while he was still alive. And I survived him. In fact, Jesse's Girl was the song I sang that distracted him and launched him into that all-too-predictable-and-familiar-typical-movie-villain rant just before he could have killed or turned me. I'm not going to go into too many details here. For that, you'll have to obtain a copy of Omnibus Prime, The Incredibly Strange and Somewhat True Adventures of Neil Daly, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, and other various retailers. But I will say that for the king of vampires who survives and thrives solely on the blood of the living, Rick Springfield gravely underestimated what straight Everclear can do to one's bloodstream and blood alcohol levels. And I'll leave it at that. Now, I'm sure a great many of you are asking yourselves, why would I even do this podcast and out him like I did in my book? Wouldn't that be painting a target on my back? And the answer is simple. I have pre-detailed my own impending death at the hands of Rick Springfield in such detail that he would be foolish to come for me now. 
if he wants to laugh in the shadows and throw shade at me from afar as if I made up the whole thing, that's fine. But he knows that taking any unholy action against me now would only draw unwanted attention upon himself. So in a weird way, much like in my book, this podcast is my wooden stake, defending me from the fiendish devil that is Rick Springfield and his eternally damned legion of Jesse's girls. Ryan, got anything you want to add? <laughs> I mean, I, get, I believe everything that you say, but I do just have to wonder... I mean, he turned an entire crowd of women into this murderous horde of monsters. Correct. I kind of feel like just being Australian could have had the same effect. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, dude. Well played. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And if you like the show but don't wish to support us through Patreon, please go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for Fire & Water Records. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast out to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. (laughs) thanks again ryan and i wish you the best of luck man may you sleep well tonight (laughs) uh rick springfield and the children of the night what sweet music they make (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to grab my garlic for the windows good night everybody Damn it, Ryan, quit screwing around. No